Well, good morning, everyone, and what a wonderful morning we've had with the baptisms. There's nothing like Baptism Sunday when you hear testimonies of God's redeeming grace in people's lives, and those were some real life-changing encounters. And I really enjoyed very much all the prayers we had this morning. You know, you go to many churches and have an open prayer time, you will not hear the men say a word. They're just completely silent. And today we had one prayer right after the other. That is so encouraging to me. And to see young men do this and take leadership in the church, I know that's very pleasant to the Lord. All right, now, you might have an outline from last week. Maybe you remember to bring it. I don't know if there's any others there. And then there's the book. Now, you do not need to take notes. Do not waste your finger strength. All of this is in the book back there. Everything and much more. So relax. Most of you work too hard. Just sit back and listen. You will actually get much more if you don't try to write it all down. Now, as our brother just said... This is Paul's final farewell message to the Ephesian elders. Ephesus became, do we have that map up here? Ephesus became, here is Ephesus. This is Turkey, by the way, the country of modern-day Turkey. Here is Ephesus. Paul left for a year and a half, went all the way over to Greece here, Corinth, and then took a, a, a boat right from here and came down. The boat stopped at Miletus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's actually in a hurry right now. They want to be there by Pentecost, and they have a very large offering to give to the poor in Jerusalem. So they stop at Miletus, and Paul calls for the elders. Now, Ephesus became one of the major epicenters of Christianity. Jerusalem, Antioch, Ephesus and Rome, four major epicenters. The interesting thing about Ephesus, it became a great mission-sending center. And uh, Paul, we'll talk about that in just a moment. So we're right here at Miletus on one of the shores of modern-day Turkey. Last week, we ended with verse 24 one of the greatest statements in all the scripture on total and complete dedication to Christ and the gospel. Now, if you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, let's look at verse 25. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Key statement right there. You're not going to see my face again. Therefore, in light of that, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, verse 28 is the first direct exhortation or challenge to the elders. Up until now, Paul has been laying out his example. Follow my example. Why? Because I'm following Christ's example, 1 Corinthians 11.1. Here it is. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for. I'm going to come back to that. The church of God, 
which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, if you have your outline, you'll see we're at point number six under Roman numeral number two. uh, Serving as a watchman, teaching the whole counsel of God. Now, these elders had heard Paul speak many times. He was three years with them. They had heard him preach the gospel of the grace of God. They had heard him preach on the kingdom. They were very well familiar with this. But now he has something to say to them, and he says this. You will not see my face again. He was there to ask, answer questions. He was there to preach and teach. Can you imagine having the Apostle Paul, who got the gospel directly from Jesus Christ, in your presence for three years? My, oh my, would I have loved that. Well, I have that. In the New Testament, I have everything Paul taught them right now at my disposal, right there. Everything Paul wants me to know, Jesus Christ wants me to know, I already have. In fact, in one sense, it's better because Paul says, you're not going to see my face again. I can read Paul anytime, day and night I want to. Now, because they will not see his face again... He reaches back into the Old Testament to the great watchman concept and theme. And he says this, that he is innocent of the blood of all. What does he mean by that? I am innocent of the blood of all. No one could point the finger at Paul and say, I did not hear the word of the Lord for you. If someone was unsaved, they could not point and say, you did not give me the word of the Lord. The elders could not say, you did not prepare us for this time. No, Paul says, I am innocent of the blood of all. Now, this goes back to the Old Testament idea of the watchman on the wall. Now, in ancient days, they did not have satellites. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have radar or anything we have today. And so, to protect a city, you have a watchman. And the watchman literally stays on a wall looking for marauding bands or armies or enemies coming against the city, normally in the night. And the watchman was responsible for the lives of all the people. And if the watchman fell asleep or was preoccupied with things he shouldn't have been doing, and a marauding band comes to rob and steal and rape and kill, and he's asleep, the blood of all those people is on the watchman. And the penalty was death. Those people died because you were not listening and watching. Now, if the watchman warned the city, alerted them to the the armies or invading forces, whatever they were, and the people didn't respond, then the blood was on their own head. So Paul is picking up that idea from the book of Ezekiel, and he says, I'm free from your blood. I have warned you. Now, look at what he says here about this innocent man teaching the whole counsel of God. For I did not shrink, verse 27, from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In many ways, this is like a centerpiece to the whole message. So important is this statement that he says it twice. He says it in verse 20 and verse 27. I'll show it to you in a moment. I'm innocent of blood guiltness because I have given you the whole counsel of God. You have the whole message of God, the plan of God. Now, uh, there's different translations. I think we're going to have them up here. Yes, 
the NIV, the Christian Standard Bible, and the NASB. Notice the different translations. The whole will of God. Paul says, I gave you the whole will of God. You're not lacking anything. There's no hidden parts here. Um, the Christian Standard Bible has the whole plan of God. And then if you have the NASB, it's the whole purpose of God. Now again, this is the second time he says this, but this time he expands it. We have verse 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. We looked at that last week. This week, very similar concept with the addition, the whole counsel of God. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, as we saw last week, Paul was thorough in his teaching. That's why there's blood guiltless here. He has not, not held anything back. These men had the best theological education you could possibly think of. They were totally prepared for what lie ahead. Now, I want to look at this term, the whole counsel of God. This is a powerful statement, and that's why, in a sense, it is a centerpiece uh, to this uh, sermon of Paul. The term counsel here refers to the divine sovereign will of God, the purposes of God, the plan of God. In a sense, I don't have any problem with any of those translations. No one particular word can bring this out, and that's why I'm using all the words. God's plans are not capricious or unpredictable like that of the Greek gods who were very capricious. God's plan, God's counsel, is based on divine intention and determination. The God of the Bible knows the beginning from the end. He has a complete plan for the human race. He has determined it. It will unfold according to his own purpose. I'd like you to listen to Isaiah 46. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, something as insignificant as a little bird, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God's not caught off guard, by the way. Putin did not fool God. The White House and the Kremlin have not pulled a fast one on the Lord. He knows the end and he knows the beginning and he actually knows what has not happened yet. That's why we reject open God's theism, which said God locks knowledge. No, God has complete and total knowledge. And what he is talking about here is the entire plan of God. Notice it's the whole counsel of God. This is the entire plan and purpose of God. And my dear friends, there it is. It's up to you whether you will go to the book. Because the whole plan and purpose of God, the will of God, is revealed just as God wants it revealed. And that's why I said to you, we have Paul with us today. 
We have Peter with us today. We have James. We have the apostles right here. And you know what? If they were here and they were speaking to us and they left, we'd go, no, do you remember that? What, did he, what exactly did he say? I don't know. I think I didn't get it right. I was uh, sleeping for a moment there. Uh, no, we can go back again and again, test it and look at it. Study it again and again. This is actually better than having the apostle here with us. Because that's what he wants us to know. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, what is this whole counsel of God? Well, it's the storyline of the Bible and doctrine. The whole counsel of God includes the entire storyline of the Bible. Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. All the major doctrines from Genesis to Revelation, from Adam to Christ. The Bible presents a coherent story. God's master plan of his sovereign redemptive purposes. In In the book of Ephesians, Paul says this. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Let's be clear about that. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's what Paul said. I give you the whole will of God. You know Genesis to Revelation. Now remember, they had the Greek Old Testament. Been around for 250 years. The whole Old Testament now would be reinterpreted in the light of Christ. Can you imagine these new believers, some of them as Jews, some who had already known the word, seeing the Bible through the eyes of Christ? Messiah is here. The explanation of the whole Old Testament, now it all falls together. That must have been exciting Bible studies. As a result, the Ephesian elders had the best seminary education possible. They were not ignorant of the things of God or of God. Now, my dear friends, we have a very big monumental problem today it's the secular tsunami our over busy lives the intrusion of the entertainment industry into our homes the bible has become for many christians a foreign book they have no idea how Genesis to Revelation fits together. They have no idea how Jeremiah or Ezekiel or any of these books fit into the canon of Scripture. They don't know uh, who comes first, Abraham, Moses, David, Jeremiah, how they fit. They don't know about the covenants of God. They don't know the great magisterial epistles of Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. There is general broad ignorance out there of the things of God. The whole counsel of God. And I'll tell you, for our young people, it's even worse. They know more about the stars of Hollywood than they know about the patriarchs, the men and women of God, or the life of Christ, or the life of Paul. Many of our young people today are so secularized by movies and television and university and and the internet and their friends that when they come to the Bible, they read it through secular eyes and thus the Bible is very offensive to them. It's a very offensive book, becoming more offensive as our society is becoming more and more godless and secularized. But Paul was a watchman on the wall. We need to be watchmen on the wall and warn our children and our young people. Who's controlling your brain? Who's giving your, you your, their perspective on life? 
Where are they getting their values? When they hear the things that are going on today in the terms of the family and sexuality and gender, they really think more like the world than the Scriptures. You have a, a poster in there. I want you to go look at it later if you haven't seen it. And it says this. If we don't teach our children to follow Christ, the world will teach them not to. Go look at that. If we do not teach our children to follow Christ, the world will teach them not to. My dear friends, God does not want you to be ignorant of His divine counsels. He wants you to understand them and know them. So I'm going to make a suggestion now. I'm going to have it on the screen here. All of you need a book or a series of lectures on how the whole Bible fits together, the whole counsel of God. So I want to make some recommendations here. There's a book by Max Anders called 30 Days Through the Bible. Actually, it takes you more than 30 days. You have to do speed reading, do it in 30 days. But there's charts and pictures where he puts the whole Bible together for you because, now listen carefully, the Bible is a progressive revelation. God is progressively from Genesis. Isn't it interesting? Read Genesis 1 and then you read Revelation 22. See it all connect. This earth, the new heaven and new earth. This will help you see how the books of the Bible fit together, how the covenants fit together, how the patriarchs fit and the promises fit together. So you need a book. I really encourage you as a family to go through this because, like I said, it's written in a very simple way with charts and pictures that will help you uh, to uh, memorize these, these truths. Then every single Christian needs a systematic theology. Now, don't get scared of that. Here is a, a recommendation right over here of a systematic theology, which means uh, this is called essential Christian doctrine. That's almost better than systematic theology because, remember, all systems of theology are man-made. Good, uh, some not so good, some very bad. So I recommend this one very much. This is the shorter version. And then here's uh, a Max Anders' book. I'd love to see you go through this as a family. You need to know the theologies, Christology, pneumatology, theology proper. So let me just tell you a story. Marilyn and I took a lady out to uh, dinner the other night with her mother. She's a woman in her 40s, saved maybe two years. And she visited this church. She calls me about this church. She says, I think I'm going to go to this church. I said, hold it a second. Do you know what that church believes? She said, well, I went to the new people's class they're not going to tell you. And when I told her what they believed, she said, no, they didn't say a word about this. I said, you know what your problem is? You don't have a theology. So you went to that church. You did not have a theological framework or picture to judge that church. She said, how am I going to do that then? I don't know. I said, you need this book right over here. You need that book, wherever it was. <laughs> now, listen to what I'm saying. Her problem was she did not have a theological framework to judge this church. And when I started telling her what this church believes, she couldn't believe it. Not going to go back. So I said, you've got to get that book 
and you need to go through that book, you need to know your eschatology, your ecclesiology, your soteriology. If you don't see the whole package, you're basically at the mercy of whatever anyone tells you. So that's why I'm asking you to do this. You need the whole counsel of God. You need a theological framework. You need to believe something, not just, you know, I know Christ died for me. Yes, okay. Um, um, uh, Lord's coming back for me. Yes. There's a lot more. There's a lot more. Paul taught the whole counsel of God. Everything. You know, when Paul left, he said, you're not going to see my face again, which was very sad. They had the whole theological package, the theological framework. They had a theology. That's what you need. All right, let's go now to the direct exhortation. I'm really encouraging you to know the whole counsel of God. And God wants you to know. And you'll be more secure when the false teachers come. Or you hear all these things that we're hearing today. You'll go, no, no, that doesn't fit in my framework. That's not how I see the Bible. All right, uh, Roman numeral number three, exhortations and warnings. So now Paul turns directly to these men, and he's going to directly exhort them. Notice what he says here. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock, verse 28. Now, my dear friends, I cannot emphasize enough the theological and practical importance of this apostolic prophetic word. Wolves are coming. Be prepared. The whole history of the church of Jesus Christ can be explained by this one passage. People were not prepared by the 2nd, 3rd century. All kinds of ideas from the Greco-Roman world and from the Old Testament are brought right into the church. Pay strict attention to yourselves. Now, I want you to notice what he does here. You might not have expected this. Pay strict attention to yourselves. This verb is an imperative verb of command. The tense is a continuous action. In other words, keep a constant watch over yourselves. Don't be inattentive or preoccupied with lesser things. Be watchful, be attentive, be on guard. Now, he says, watch yourselves. Now, you would think he'd say, watch the church. He's going to say that. But the first thing he says, gentlemen, pay strict attention to yourselves. If you can't guard yourself, you can't guard others. This is self-care, self-shepherding, soul care. It's the first order of business. Many times men will say to me as an elder, say, what do you think the first thing I need to do? I say, guard your soul. Be prepared. Because if you don't know how to pray, you don't know how to study the Bible, you don't know how to walk with the Lord, tell me how you're going to tell other people this. So that's the first thing he says. There's a powerful quotation um, uh, by uh, Richard Baxter from the Reformed Pastor reminding all shepherds that they're the target of the devil. Listen carefully what Baxter says. Take heed to yourselves because the tempter will make his first and sharpest attack on you. And we've seen a lot of that in the last 10 years. Christian leaders go down. He knows 
what devastation he is likely to make among the rest if he can make the leaders fall before their eyes. He has long practiced fighting neither against great nor small comparatively, but against the shepherds, that he might scatter the flock. Take heed then, for the enemy has a special eye on you. You are sure to have his most subtle insinuations, incessant solicitations, and violent assaults. Take heed to yourself, lest he outwit you. The devil is a greater scholar than you are, and a more nimble disputant. And whenever he prevails against you, he will make you the instrument of your own ruin. We have watched one leader after another leader go down. The devil has a special eye on the shepherds. Remember Ephesians 6.12. Do not forget this. We are fighting against authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. You are in spiritual conflict. Pay strict attention to yourself. Deal with sin. Make sure you're growing. One of the, the best ways I find for guarding your soul is to be a growing Christian. I can go negative things, deal with sin, read your Bible. But if you're a growing Christian, excited about the Lord, it's the best thing you can do for your, your Christian life, your spiritual life. It's when we become stagnant that we're in real danger. I pay strict attention to all the flock. Now, this is what we would expect. Paul tells the elders, you are to carefully watch over the flock. Now, a flock can be a flock of sheep or goats, but most of the time, a flock uh, comprises both sheep and goats. And this is a metaphor for the church. The local church is a flock. And that metaphor brings out ownership, Christ owns it. Dependence, value, and in this context, continuous protective care. A flock in the ancient world stood for wealth. A flock of sheep and goats was valuable for wool and milk and cheese and meat and bones and skins and leather goods. It represented one's wealth. Now, this flock is very wealthy, very valuable because it's God's. It's the flock he bought, that he owns, he cares for, and loves. It is great worth to him. So he expects the shepherds to take care of him. Pay strict attention. Notice all the flock. Not just your friends. Not just your buddies, the people who agree with you. Everyone. And some people we watch over, we frankly have a hard time with. They're not so pleasant. Not so nice. But we're to care for them. All the Lord's people. Now, this charge is so important because it's God's flock. It's a huge responsibility to take care of God's flock. He wants to give us motivation. Paul understood that people need motivational reasons. We have a, a little lake right, right near us, directly across the street from our chapel. And uh, for years, people were coming with bags 
bags of corn and bread and feeding the ducks and the geese. Signs were up, do not feed the geese, do not feed the ducks, didn't matter. I'm surprised people didn't come with dump trucks with stuff. So finally, the city of Littleton got smart, and they put up a sign that explained why you should not feed them. And it hurts their digestive system. It ruins their migration patterns. It's actually not good for them. They need to eat regular grass and things that are in the water. And they listed the reasons why you should not feed the ducks. And I saw for a long, long time, people were not feeding the ducks. They needed reasons. Well, that's what Paul's going to do here. Shepherd the flock of God. Sacrifice your life for the sheep. Why? Here's why. Four reasons. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. All right. Here are the four reasons. Number one. Holy Spirit appointment. It was the Holy... This is very important, by the way, for the running of your church. This is ecclesiology. You need, a, you need an ecclesiology. You need a doctrine of the church. Don't just go to a church because they have nice-looking people there. Go to a church that's biblically oriented. That's a New Testament church. Now, here's, here's some reasons right here. First of all, it was the spirits doing, sovereign spirits, empowering, motivating, gifting these men to be overseers and shepherds. They are there by divine placement, initiative, and design. The Holy Spirit placed you, set you, appointed you as overseers. Now that should move all of us. If the Holy Spirit of God has given you a job and gifted you for it, that's pretty serious. And the only elders you want are the elders the Holy Spirit put there. You don't want someone who pushed their way in or someone who's got a high view of themselves, I should be a leader. Or someone who's delusional, and that happens very often. You want someone that the Spirit of God, you should be able to look at that person and say, I see the Spirit of God leading him to care for us. There should be evidence the Holy Spirit's behind this. And in fact, I would say this. Sometimes you get a, a very godly man that wants to be an elder, but something's missing. Where's his attendance? Uh, where's his care for the people? You can say to that person, we do not see evidence the Holy Spirit is leading you to do this. You have every right to say that. There has to be evidence the Holy Spirit has motivated you to love the people, sacrifice for the people, care for the people, be really concerned about them. Call them, check on them, be with them. Has to be signs. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a human element to it, but it means ultimately it's the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit made you overseers. Now, you would expect at this point for him to say the Holy Spirit made you elders. He's talking, verse 17, to the elders. But he switches his terminology to overseers, which tells us that overseers and elders are the same. They're used interchangeably. We don't have time to go into this. Read that book back there. Now, the word overseer brings out the work. Almost a, a, a parallel statement would be superintendent, a supervisor, a guardian. It, it has the whole that idea of watching over. It goes beautifully with the next uh, a phrase, Shepherd the church of God. So you have the term elder. 
Elder stands for maturity, experience, dignity, community leader. Overseer emphasizes the work. You supervise, you superintend, you watch over, you're guarding. So each word brings out a different nuance of what an elder is. So you can call an elder an overseer, you can call an elder an elder. Now, the Holy Spirit placed them there as overseers. Now, a purpose infinitive, to shepherd the flock of God. Now, how many here are using the ESV? Okay. I don't know what happened, but the translators of the ESV must have either got tired at the end of the day or they went out for coffee. I don't know what the problem is. They put, this is a terrible translation, care for. That's not what the Greek word, the Greek word, everyone knows the Greek word. It's shepherd. Shepherd is a much, much bigger concept. Care for is a, a part of that. That's all it is. It's a part of it. Shepherd means to feed, to protect, to lead, and care for. So, I don't know what happened to these men, but it's a terrible translation, and it loses the force. Most of your Bibles, thankfully, uh, stay with shepherd. So, now we learn something, that the elders who he's speaking to were made by the Holy Spirit overseers for the purpose to shepherd the flock of God or the church of God. Shepherd is a beautiful word. It brings up all that we have in the Old Testament about shepherding. God is the shepherd. Lord Jesus Christ is the shepherd. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. We could give a whole sermon. You know why? It's in that book back there. The whole sermon on shepherding. Now, the immense value uh, of the church of God. I skipped this, the second one. The nature of the flock, the church of God. The local church does not belong to the elders, the apostles, or any other person. It doesn't belong to Martin Luther, or John Calvin, or John Wesley, or John Nelson Darby. It doesn't belong to any denomination. The church of God is God's possession. It's the church, the assembly, the congregation, the gathering of God's people. God called this company of people into existence. He is the one who sustains it, provides for it, and cares for it. Thus, it must be educated and protected and cared for and led. This is the congregation of God. That's why we should never take any man's name. I don't know why. We, Luther said, don't call yourself Lutherans. What did they do? Lutherans. Calvinists. Wesleyans. Don't take any man's name unless they died for you. Reminds me of a, a lady in our church moved way up to North Denver and she calls me about a month later and says, Alex, I'm at this church and they want me to be rebaptized into their church. What should I do? I said, well, ask the pastor this. Did you die for my sins? Am I going to be baptized in your name? If that's not true, you have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by, by God's people. Don't you dare get rebaptized because some man tells you to. And I think it was being baptized into their church. You're not baptized into some church. You're already in the church when you get baptized. Now, 
Third, the immense value of the church of God. This is really powerful, really powerful. This church of God, which he purchased or he obtained with his own blood. Little problem here in the, in the um, uh, original manuscripts and in the translation. So let's skip all that and go right to the heart of it. The blood of his own one. Obtained with the blood of his own one, Jesus Christ. That's your best, best bet on this. David Gooding says this, With this we touch the mainspring of all true defense and shepherding of the church, the cost at which God bought it. Now remember, he's giving motivational reasons for why should you shepherd the church of God. Because it cost God everything. He couldn't have paid more. It was the blood of his own son that was the price paid to obtain the church. Better do the job. An incalculable price paid. God acquired this group of people by means of the shed blood of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Now, by blood, he means death, but he means more than death. More specifically, he means shed blood, sacrificial death. The entire Old Testament system is just brought up at this moment. A violent taking away of Christ's life at the cross. The Old Testament system of sacrificial slaughter of the Lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. So it's not just death. It is death. It's sacrificial death. It's slaughter of the animal, the shedding of the blood. Isaiah says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. And then the heavenly, glorious theme of the angels. Worthy are you to take the scroll, for you were slain. Again, sacrificial slaughter. And by your blood, you ransom people for a God from every tribe and language to people and nation. That's why you should take care of my people. Sometimes you look out at the Lord's people and you go, Oh my heavens, they have so many problems. Some of them are not so nice to be with. They say terrible things about me. And you can get very discouraged. You can get very discouraged. But then you have to remember this. They're blood-bought people. The highest possible price was paid for these people. Who in the world do you think you are? You can't take some problems. And you're just as big as a problem as they are. You just don't see it. Ask your spouse. Oh, We have redemption through his blood, Paul says in Ephesians 1.7. Redemption through his blood. The cost, the price, the value, that's the motivation. Now next, the fourth motivating word is fierce wolves are coming, be alert. Paul says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Notice what Paul says, I know. He didn't say, I think. Possibly, who knows? Who knows the future? He doesn't say things men are going to get better and better. 
Your best days are ahead. You don't need to be over-worried. <laughs> don't make me laugh, because when I start laughing, I can't stop. All right, someone cover this brother's head or something. <laughs> Paul's saying, be prepared. Eminent danger, no question about it. They're just waiting out there, just waiting when I leave. In a special way, Paul held back the false teachers. And we see that in the book of Acts. Every time he left the church, those Judaizers were in there right away, immediately. And that's why in Galatians he says, I'm, so, I'm shocked how so quickly you've deserted the one who called you by the grace of God. It's like the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, how quickly they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, that led you out of Egypt. These little tiny gold calves. Wolves are coming. Intruders are coming. These wolves are probably two things. One, the Judaizers who come and they say, that's very nice what Paul says about the Messiah, but he has not given you the whole gospel. You need the Torah. You need the works. You need to follow the the Mosaic uh, guidelines here. So it's faith plus these works. Bringing in the Old Testament, always a problem. The second is most likely this is, he's thinking also of the... uh, the civil government. Remember, in, in Paul's day, the government and religion was all uh, caught up together. And so when these Christians are leaving the Greco-Roman uh, structure, uh, they're not going to pay tribute to Caesar and to the gods, which they were very, very proud about their god Zeus and Hermes and all the rest, a great long history. These people called Christians will not worship our gods anymore, and they will not offer incense to Caesar. They persecuted them. They, they wanted to stop this religion. A, a crucified Jew upon the cross, risen from the dead. Craziness. Who ever heard of such a thing? So the government persecuted, for the next several hundred years, the Christians. So probably uh, the government is included. But then it gets more frightening. Even from among your own selves, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Notice the key phrase, twisted things. They take the standard of what God's word is and they twist it. They turn it. They distort it. Oh, they're very, very clever. Very clever. They distort and pervert apostolic orthodox doctrine, the standard of truth. They tie the true teaching of scripture into complex knots that even the most learned can hardly untie. They are slippery creatures who cannot be easily pinned down. They are experts in double talk and diversion. You cannot have an honest discussion with them because they lack intellectual honesty. Masters of subtlety and novelty. False teachers mix truth and error and confuse people with half-truths and complex ideas. And who's behind it all? The greatest liar of them all, the greatest pervert and twisted person of all, Satan. Satan. Men, right from within the church, men are going to rise speaking twisted things. Be alert. Be ready to act. Verse 31. Remember, that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In other words, Paul was vigilant and he's using his example again. At no time did I back off on warning you and admonishing you. Every single one of you in the church, night and day, 
You have been warned of wolves. My friends, we are literally surrounded by wolves today. I think because of the internet and all the mass media that we have, the power of the media, we can, we can spread false teaching so fast. Shockingly so. Paul says, be alert, be awake. Both eyes open, both ears open. I never ceased warning you, each one, individually. Personal example again. Stay informed. Now, let's go on here because I'm over time now and I don't want to be excommunicated. (laughs) All right. Uh, Entrusting the elders to God in His Word. So I'll just do this very quickly. All right. They're in the dark city of Ephesus. Charles, uh, R.H. Charles says this, Ephesus was a hotbed of every kind of cult and superstition. The the empirical um, um, uh, cult, the worship emperor, it was a port city, terribly immoral. How are these Christians going to survive in a San Francisco without their great apostle, teacher? How are they going to make it? This is a dark, cultic city. There weren't lots and lots of Christians around, millions of Christians. Two ways, two ways. One is, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He says, I trust you to God. In other words, this is the God of the Old Testament. Just like that God could take care of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness and feed millions of people, He'll take care of you. He wanted them to have a strong theology of God. To know God, to know God's ways, know God's word, because they were going to be kept safe in this dark city through God himself. Second thing is through the word of his grace, which can give an inheritance That's how powerful the Word of God is. It can give you an eternal inheritance. No geometry book or history book or math book can give you an inheritance among all the saints. Bible can, if you will believe. And we heard testimonies today of people who believed. Now, I I just absolutely have to read this quote to you. I may have read it to you last week, but I want to read it to you again. It is so good. This is by R.C. Sproul. Are you ready? I don't want to see anyone sleeping now. (laughs) I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for a power in programs and methodologies and techniques in anything and everything but that which God has placed in his word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity, and that power is focused on God. The scriptures. That's where God works. And it can give you eternal life. Inheritance among the saints. So he says, I'm leaving. You won't see my face again. I'm entrusting you to the safekeeping of God himself. The God of the Old Testament. I trust him. You trust him. Know about him. And I'm entrusting you to the word of his grace. It's right there. So we have what we need to survive right here. Now, maintaining integrity. So at this point, I'm going to just go about five more minutes, no more. All right, at this point, at this point, 
you would think the sermon's over. I mean, it looks to me like it's over. He entrusts him to God, trusts him to the Word, which can give eternal life. But he's not. He starts up again. Why is that? It's very typical, if you look through the farewell sermons of the Old Testament or any place else, there usually is at the end a disavowal of any kind of greed or any kind of uh, distortion, um, a taking of other people's money. And that's exactly what he does here. Maintaining financial integrity, disavowing all greed. I coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. Now, my friends, he didn't say, I took no one's silver, gold, and apparel. He says something far more powerful. I didn't covet. In other words, I wasn't out for the dollar signs. I didn't see you as a dollar sign. I didn't covet your gold. I didn't even cover your clothes, which in the ancient world, that's how you tell a rich person from a poor person, clothes. Clothes were very expensive and quickly eaten by moths. <laughs> so he didn't, he didn't even have a covetous, desirous heart for those things. Now, anyone can say that, right? But he proved it. Look at what he says. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. This is amazing. In other words, he supported himself. For three years, he's an evangelist, he's an apostle, he's a teacher, church planner. I support it myself. These hands, you see these hands? I worked. Now, I don't have time for this, but I just read very recently how Paul would use the leather shop, a, a business, to contact people. How does he have contact with people? In the ancient world, the world in which he is operating, the craft shops were a place almost like a Starbucks where people would come and congregate and talk and meet people. So the business became a way to meet people. Public, remember he said last week, publicly declaring to you the gospel? So, but not only did he care for his own financial needs, those who were with him. In other words, he supported Timothy and Titus so they could go out and get the gospel out to different places. In all things I've shown you, notice, example, I have shown you, example, that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. The weak here is not weak spiritually. Those who are weak in the sense of uh, not having basic physical and material needs due to age or sickness or disability or poverty, social status, or any other legitimate reason. Paul said, we have to take care of brothers and sisters who have problems. And let me tell you, to be a widow or an orphan or sick in the ancient world, you were in trouble. There was no social net. And there was plenty of people to rob from these people. Jesus even said to the Pharisees, you rob widows' houses. Nice guys. We have plenty of them on TV, so don't worry. The blessing of giving generously. We must, that's an, that's an imperative, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So he brings up an a oral statement of Jesus, an authentic statement of Jesus, not in the four Gospels, and he's brought in here, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And if you are a giver, you know it is more blessed to give. It's a greater blessing. Only small-minded, selfish people love just things for themselves. If you have a big heart, open hand, you love to give. And you are blessed by giving. That's what Jesus said. Now, most of you do not know that I am a financial advisor. I'm not with Fisher Investments or Merle Lynch or Morgan Stanley. I'm with Jesus Eternal Life Insurance Company. I give financial advice. 
I got it from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave the greatest financial advice ever given to anyone. And he said this, the Lord Jesus said this, provide for yourself treasures in heaven. 100% return on your investment. (laughs) And it's eternal. And it's a sure deal. Now right now, if you have any investments, I'll just weep with you. I'll just weep with you. But that's not the way it is with Christ. Whatever you invest with the Lord, he's no man's debtor. You have not done one thing that will not be brought up at the judgment seat of Christ that will not be rewarded. The Lord said that to Peter. Peter said, well, what are we going to get out of this? You get 100% more than anything you gave. You'll only wish you had given more. That's what you will wish at the judgment seat of Christ. Because he's a rich rewarder of those who follow him and do his will. Invest now in eternity. And it's secure. Isn't isn't it interesting that our faith affects our wallets and our bank accounts? Now he bids farewell. Oh, what a beautiful farewell. You can see how these men loved him. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him. So I I saw that. I'm almost done now. Please don't get up and leave. I saw this article and I had to, had to read it. So I, got, I, I think I stole the magazine, but maybe I didn't. I don't know. And it had a pyramid and it was the lonely pastor at the top of the pyramid. I knew I had to have this article. The lonely pastor at the top of the pyramid. Was Paul a lonely pastor at the top of the pyramid? No. He was very relational. He loved his brothers. Did you see that there? You don't fall down and weep and kiss someone at the top of the pyramid. You fear that person because you're a subordinate. He had colleagues. He had friends. He had companions. And when he was leaving, they literally wept. And here's why. This kind of leader doesn't just teach and manage. He inspires. He inspired these men. He motivated them. He changed them. And the thought that they would not see him again, it was too much for them. So the only conclusion, the only conclusion could be they pray. They kneel down and pray. It's our last meeting with our great friend. We'll never be the same working with this man. Remember what I said last week. You are an influencer you also inspire others by your godly life and your obedience to the word of God. Let us pray. And I ask you now to forgive me for going so far over time. Don't let anyone else do this. (laughs) Lord, we thank you for these powerful, powerful words from the apostle. And may they inspire us to have our priorities straight. We ask this in the name of our Lord. Amen. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.